It's a long passage this morning from John 18 and 19. Then Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went, out, went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as, as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Do you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the palace known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king. Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying, him, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The, ch the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this myth claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment, this garment, was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From this time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, he, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With this, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. For Easter this year, we're considering the gospel in, uh, through the lens of two cosmic trials. There are two trials in the Bible that influence the entire biblical story and really all of human experience in, in God's story. The first, of course, is the trial of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And the second is the trial of Jesus himself that we read this morning. Last week, we considered the trial of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and we noted three effects of sin that enter the world once they decide to eat of the forbidden tree. Effect number one was the need to uh, conceal and to protect oneself. Uh, it, effect of sin number two was the uh, desire or the need to hide from God. And effect number three was uh, the tendency to blame others. These three effects of sin change the human condition. They make the world actually, in some ways, a very scary and sad place as a result of sin. Sin changes uh, really all of our relationships. And what I'd like to consider in terms of highlighting the differences between these two trials is to do, take those effects of sin in three rounds. Round one will be a quick review of Genesis 3. Round two will be to evaluate the characters in our passage today other than Jesus. And round three will be to evaluate uh, Jesus himself. Now remember, as I suggested to you last week, uh, the question before us as we examine these two trials and examine why the trial of Jesus is different is to ask, uh, which trial informs my life? Right? If I actually look at my life, what's going on, what ha is happening in my life, does it have more in common with the verdict and outcome of the first trial or does it have more in common with the verdict and outcome of the second trial? We'll come back to that question at the end. So round one, all right? 
Quick review of Genesis 3 and what we looked at last week. When uh, Adam and Eve decide to eat of the tree that is forbidden to them, uh, Genesis 3 says that there's an awareness, right? That their eyes were open and suddenly they understand the world in a way that they had not before. And the way that the passage describes that understanding is to say that they became aware of their nakedness and proceeded then to sew fig leaves together to make clothes. Now we also said that that can't simply be about nakedness because Adam and Eve were created in nakedness and we can't say that God created them in a state of sin. So there must be something more that is occurring, right? Something bigger at hand uh, in the midst of the story. And certainly there is. We have to understand that Adam and Eve decide, right? uh, When they choose to eat of that tree, they decide we are going to consume the creation, right? We are actually created to be gardeners of the creation for God's glory. Instead, we're going to consume it as we see fit to try to fill our own appetite, right? Of course, the creation will never fill them up. They are created to be filled by God. And so they hand themselves over to this insatiable appetite which will devour creation, seeking to fill it, but never actually being uh, content. Now that's a scary world to live in when you realize that that desire is inside of you and that desire is in the other person who you are in relationship with. You need uh, both to protect yourself from other people who may want to consume you I always said if you were willing to consume any aspect of the creation, particularly the tree in the first instance, then there's no reason to believe that we won't consume everything, including one another, right, to try to fill our appetite. So with this awareness coming into the world, there's the need to protect myself, and there's the need to conceal myself because I don't want you to see that desire within me, right? Both these things are happening, and why the clothes are, are literal and nakedness is part of that, it's a much bigger uh, issue of vulnerability and how the world has changed in the, in the context of Genesis 3. So the first effect of sin is this need to conceal and protect. The second effect was what? It was to hide from God. Right? It says that um, Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and what do they do? We're just going to kind of move back into the trees and shrubs and hope that he doesn't notice us, Right? But uh, God, you know, you can't hide from God. God says, where are you? And they are presented before him. And Adam says, uh, we had, um, we, became, we were aware of our nakedness and we were afraid. That's why, why we were hiding. Right? We see again. So for Adam, suddenly there's shame. I'm, I'm aware not only that I've done something wrong, but the world has changed. Right? Again, I'm aware of my nakedness. Right? God isn't surprised by that. That's how he made them. And so he's referring to something larger, right? But as a result of this new uh, desire to consume and devour the creation, Adam says, uh, you know, my nakedness is now an aspect of shame in which it was not before. And I was afraid, right? Sadly, for the first time in the biblical story, suddenly there is not only fear entering the story, but fear in relation to God. We were created for, for, for joyful intimacy with him. And now... He says, uh, I'm afraid. I, w- I, I would have rather pretend that you didn't exist than to actually engage you and to deal with this. The third effect of sin was then the tendency uh, or the desire to blame others, right? To excuse ourselves of sin by virtue of what's happening around us. Because when God goes to Adam and says, you know, what's occurred here or who told you that you were naked? Adam says, the woman, Right? And when uh, 
God then turns to the woman and says, who, uh, you know, what have you done? Uh, the woman says, the serpent. And again, leading with finger pointing towards someone else or something else that excuses our own behavior. I'm not responsible here, God. It was the woman or it was the serpent, but I'm really not the one to blame. And you would understand my action here uh, if you understood the whole context and all the, all the aspects of what's going on. Okay? That's round one. Three effects of sin that enter into the world as a result of Adam and Eve's first sin. Right? Our need to, contact, uh, to uh, conceal and protect, our hiding from God, and our, um, our, our blaming. It's just testing y'all. It's Easter, y'all. I know many of you had too many... Uh, Robin eggs, or what are those really gross things that are made of marshmallow? Peeps. peeps. Some of you have had too many peeps. I can tell. So I'm going to keep you on your toes. What's the third one? Yes, blaming. Now, okay, good. All right, so that leads us to round two, which is to consider the people in our story other than Jesus. Right? Thousands of years have gone by. Have the effects of sin diminished? Are people living in a different way uh, than Adam and Eve were? Have we made any progress? Well, if we consider the characters in our story and ask if they are protecting themselves and concealing or hiding themselves from one another, uh, we certainly would have to say yes. If you notice, as we move through uh, the trial account, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, hands Jesus over to Pilate, and Pilate is quite uh, uh, firmly persuaded that Jesus is innocent. He exonerates him uh, no less than three times in the course of the trial saying, I find no guilt in this man. Right? I under, clearly, Pilate understands this is some kind of political squabble that he doesn't want to get involved with. Right? But you get to the place where the, the uh, Jewish leaders start to crank up the pressure. And they say, well, you know, he said that he is, a, uh, is king of the Jews, and you know, anyone friendly to Caesar would take this seriously. What does Pilate say? Oh, now you're talking dangerous political language. I'm the Roman governor. I can't be perceived to being out of, uh, out of agreement with Caesar. So now I'm going to put on my good Roman governor clothes. I'm going to kind of protect and conceal. I'm going to conceal my notion that he's really innocent. And I'm going to protect myself by handing him over to you. And Pilate essentially says, no, I'm the good Roman citizen. Let's not go down this road where you question my allegiance to Caesar. Here he is. We'll take him to the cross. And if we look at the Jewish leaders, we see something very similar. They, um, they've gotten into this uh, difficult place, right? They say, uh, oh, you know, we can't kill him, which is really quite silly because numerous times in the Gospel of John, the Jews have already tried to kill Jesus. Right? They've tried to stone him. But they finally found themselves in a place where Jesus now has such a following that they're afraid to act uh, and kill him themselves so they decide that we must have the Romans carry this out for us, and if the Romans do it, then the people can't rebel because Rome won't tolerate a rebellion. Right? Pretty savvy. And so the, it's going on and going on, and Pilate, you know, there's a lot of political gamesmanship in the story, but Pilate eventually says, you really want me to kill this man who simply claims to be your king? And the Jews say something astonishing. What it, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Now, in any context of ancient Judaism, that would have been utter blasphemy. 
utterly intolerable. If someone said that simply before the priest, not on this day and not regarding Jesus, they would have been held accountable for blasphemy because there's only one king and one God, and that is Yahweh. And to say that Caesar is our king is a remarkable statement, especially from the priesthood. Right? Shocking. But what are they willing to do? We're going to conceal our Jewish, we're going to conceal and protect ourselves, and we're going to say something that we don't believe. We're going to portray an image so that we can make sure that this person who claims to be Messiah can be put to death. There's plenty of concealing and protecting going on amidst the characters of our story. If we were to ask, are they hiding, right? We would have to ask the difficult question of where are the disciples? Jesus stands alone in the midst of his trial. And in fact, immediately preceding the passage that we've read this morning, Peter denies knowing Jesus. They've deserted him. Right? Rather than, they, the disciples have said, here's, the story is going in a very surprising and very unpleasant direction. We're going to back up and hide in the trees. Right? Just like the first parents. The story is going in a very surprising and unpleasant direction. We're going to back up and hide from the presence of Yahweh. And if we were to ask, do we see blame happening in the midst of uh, the gospel. Certainly, Pilate is very frustrated with the Jewish leaders. He feels trapped as a result, and he holds them responsible. Right? His blood is not on my hands. This is your responsibility. You can see his frustration at the end, too, when they, he placed a sign over Jesus saying, the king of the Jews, in three different languages. And they said, hey, actually, can you make that say he said he was king of the Jews? And by this time, Pilate's not playing. He says, no, what I've written is what I've written. I'm not going to cooperate anymore. You've gotten me to do, to carry out this function that you have wanted me to do. And of course, the priests are blaming their frustration, their contempt for the situation they're in. The people following the Messiah and recognizing his righteousness and not recognizing their righteousness. What do they do? They blame Jesus. All their contempt falls on him. And it drives them to actually be so angry and so full of hatred toward him that they would kill him. Not simply that they would be offended or discredit him or argue against him in public squares, but that they would pursue to put him to death. That is their level of contempt toward him. And not much has changed. There's plenty of uh, concealing and protecting and hiding and blaming amongst the characters in our story. And that leads us to round three, which is to consider Jesus in the midst of our story. Do we see God in the flesh deciding to protect and conceal? No. Jesus surrenders himself. Right? When the guards come, not in John, but the other gospels tell us that, you know, he says, I could call down legions on my behalf, but I choose not to do it. I'm surrendering myself to this path. I'm surrendering myself to the vulnerability to the point that I will be stripped naked and hang on the cross. Do we see Jesus hiding? No, in fact, uh, remarkably, we see Jesus running toward God. As Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying, he says, Father, would you take this cup from me? I don't want to go down this road. But he also prays, not my will be done, but yours. Right, in the midst of Jesus being, you know, looking at the story and saying, this is not 
I'm very nervous, and this is a surprising direction in some, some ways. You know, we don't know to what degree it is surprising, but we know that Jesus would alter the course if it were in his power. But even in that darkest hour, he runs to God, does not hide from him, but pursues him, and God's, the Father's answer in the midst of it. Do we see Jesus blaming anyone? No, certainly he had every right to blame the Jews who had betrayed him and not recognized God in the flesh to blame the Romans, who's, he says to Pilate, your authority comes from God. But he does not hold out blame. He does not excuse anyone. But as he goes to the cross, he ultimately says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's ridiculous compassion in the midst of our profound brokenness. And so we see uh, Jesus as the perfect man. And that, of course, is what we would expect because we, we confess that he is perfect. Is that simply the point, right? Some of you are so well trained that we've gotten to Jesus that you think we're done. Right? And you think, excellent. Let's go celebrate resurrection. Right? Nothing says resurrection like 4,000 calories and a long nap. Right? The only thing wrong with Resurrection Sunday is there's no football. Right? We chuckle, but it's a little ironic, is it not? I mean, that we celebrate the resurrection with a bit of gluttony and a bit of sloth. Is this what... Are we simply saying Jesus has done it all and that we're just waiting for it to be all wound up? Indeed not. What I'm suggesting is that there's a radical difference in the life that comes forward from Jesus and the life that comes forward from Adam. And we need to understand the difference in that life and the difference in, in, in the two trials and how they move through uh, these effects of sin where Jesus demonstrates none and Adam demonstrates plenty. What is, what is the difference between these effects? And again, back to that question that I posed to you at the beginning and last week. Do you have more in common with Adam's trial or do you have more in common with Christ's trial? Right? You're supposed to be unified to the risen one and made new. Do you demonstrate that newness? Let me give you a couple examples to help you think through whether that newness is on display. Are you, uh, do you have the tendency to protect and conceal? Right? To, um, to hide to put forth an image, to not be willing to be vulnerable and be known. There's a uh, wonderful uh, TED Talk that, in my opinion, should be required viewing for every uh, high school girl. It's by a model named Cameron Russell. It's easy to find. It's one of the most popular TED Talks. And it's uh, quite brief, but uh, Cameron Russell is a very successful model. And she wanted to give a talk which exposed some of the truth of modeling to give an insider's perspective on what it's like to be a model because, of course, she's always approached by girls who want to be her. And so she, she talks about uh, the artificial nature of what she does, that it's not real, that it's a world of uh, Photoshop and that all pictures are doctored and goes on. And eventually she's, she's relaying some of the questions that are posed to her by people, often girls, who come up to her and are aspiring in the modeling career. And uh, she says this. So the last question people ask me is, what is it like to be a model? I think the answer that they're looking for is, if you are a little bit skinnier and you have shinier hair, you will be so happy and fabulous. 
And when we're backstage, we give an answer that maybe makes it seem like that. We say, it's really amazing to travel, and it's amazing to get to work with creative, inspired, passionate people. That's a funny quote. And those things are true, but they're only one half of the story, because the thing that we never say on camera, that I have never said on camera, is I am insecure. And I'm insecure because I have to think about what I look like every day. And if you ever are wondering, if I have thinner thighs and shinier hair, will I be happier? You just need to meet a group of models because they have the thinnest thighs, the shiniest hair, and the coolest clothes. And they're the most physically insecure women probably on the planet. What a great perspective. Someone being transparent and vulnerable in a world that says, no, we, we don't want you to see Reality, we don't want you to see insecurity. We want you only to see the, the strength and the beauty and the image that we put forth, right? So in what ways, you know, as you think about how people know you, what's image, right? Is there some aspect of your life where you say, people would say I'm really put together, and inside you say they have no idea. Right? That's a way in which you participate in protection and concealment, the first effect of sin. Well, what about hiding? See, if we hide from God, we cut ourselves off from life. Right? If I hide from God, who is the real rescuer, I need to find rescue somewhere else. If I hide from God, who is the real savior, I need to find salvation somewhere else. And so the question to you is then, you know, where would you be looking for those things? One uh, funny, uh, well, I don't know if funny is the right word, but one example is certainly in uh, the new world of Uber health, right? This world of um, uh, high-end spas and big detox programs. And, you know, I'm talking about serious stuff like uh, vitamin IVs and all kinds of special light radiating and uh, colonics that make it so that you, for an extended period, cannot be more than 25 feet from a bathroom and all of these aspects that you will be uh, restored, right? You're going to be made uber healthy. A journalist uh, recently uh, immersed herself into that world and was going through lots of these programs. You know, these spas, uh, interestingly, didn't exist 30 years ago. Today, it's a $16.3 billion industry, and there are 21,000 nationally, right? What are we looking for? What do we think these are going to uh, deliver? Anyway, she writes, uh, I know what people think about detox, that it's a way to deal with an ultra-toxic world. Even so, the true impetus for it seems to be something a little more subtle and even a bit nefarious. On Planet Wellness, despite all the oohs and ahs about the glories of nature, there's a general mistrust of the way the human body actually works, with natural systems getting overridden so that nutrients and herbs and tea and light and wishes can get inside you through avenues that weren't necessarily meant to accommodate those things. I chuckle a little bit. I have a relative who always wishes me good energy. Uh, it seems that the further we go with fancy and intricate treatments, the more we're engaging in a ritual effort to make ourselves pure again. And this is something that has a lot of implications for how we feel about ourselves as women, particularly as we age, I don't mean how our bodies look and work differently as we get older, but how we think of ourselves as whole persons or whole people who have a history, people who have made mistakes, people who have eaten a cheeseburger on occasion, people who have loved the wrong people and have been imperfect in a way that feels unforgivable. Gosh, that's great. In my journey through detoxification, I didn't find that these treatments were just attempts to be young again. 
No, there were attempts to be new. Right? What did she say? People aren't going to be healthy. People are going because they feel like they have this litany of mistakes. And what, uh, you know, what, what does a secular person call a sin? A mistake, right? Something that you regret. And so you've got this huge cadre of mistakes that you've made, and you're going to be liberated from that. Um, that you are imperfect. And she even says ways uh, for these things that feel unforgivable. Right? Uh, why do you need forgiveness in a secular world? And yet they go and try to be made new. So the question to you is, are you hiding from God? Are you hiding from God, which means that you would have to look for love and life and forgiveness in something else? You know, and one way to discover that is to say, oh, if Jesus showed up in the flesh, I sure hope he wouldn't show up here or look at this or join me in this moment of my week. Why? Because that's going to reveal what you're very intent on hiding from God. Right? Last one is to, uh, to blame another person, right? To say, uh, yes, I know I've got some sin. I've known I've, I've erred, but my error doesn't compare to the error that has been put on by this person. And so my behavior is excused as a result, right? Just like Adam says the woman, Eve says the serpent. Uh, recently, I was talking with a neighbor, and when you're a pastor... Sometimes, um, oddly, people confess, right? You're just chatting, hi, nice to meet you, what do you do? I'm a pastor, I pastor the local church in town, blah, 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 and it's, hey, listen, vomit, right? <laughs> and it really kind of strikes me as funny because I don't, I don't know what they expect. Like, I don't have any absolution to get, I guess they think I'm safe. So he starts talking about how he's drinking too much and is, is worried about this and is, is, comfortable about, is not comfortable about it. But then he starts to go, well, the reason I'm drinking is work. Work is horrible. Every day is a struggle. Every week is long. It, and it, it's just, it's a big burden. And that's even exacerbated because, well, I'm the sole breadwinner and uh, my wife doesn't do anything and she's nagging me all the time and that's really hard. So uh, you add all that together, and what was impressive is he got to the end. He said, you know, I'm really not drinking too much for what's going on in my life. I think it's a, a reasonable amount. Now, that's pretty, pretty slick, right? right? Who, whoever said that drunkenness is dependent on context, right? Like, oh, well, if this is going on, you get four extra beers, right? But for him, right, as he's processing it, he's like, yeah, as I think about this and get angry and blame these other people, I now am in a place where I feel comfortable again excusing my sin. Right? And that's what we see Adam and Eve doing in the garden. So, is there a place where you automatically go and say, I, I, you know, you know that, you know, think of a situation where you get really angry at somebody. You're really frustrated. And whenever the light shines on you, you say, no, I don't want it to shine on me. It needs to shine on this person. Right? Let's deal with that and then not and then maybe we can deal with me, right? It's the blaming that's going on. So now, back to the question, right? Which, do you have more in common with those effects of sin, right, that are part of the trial for Adam and Eve, or do you have more in common with the vulnerability of Jesus, his transparency, his running to God in the midst of a very scary moment, and um, his uh, desire 
uh, or his, his, his uh, innocence in terms of blaming or anyone and excusing his situation. Which, which trial, which character characterizes you? What, what really is the difference between the two? We look to the garden and we look to Jesus. And one of the remarkable uh, differences which uh, the New Testament brings out a bit for us and this will be your challenge today to celebrate resurrection in a real way and not just simply by overeating, right? You can do both. Um, is to recognize that, that the garden and Jesus and, uh, are both situations of, of potential panic, right? In other words, both Adam and Eve and Jesus see the story going in a direction that is very nerve-wracking, to say the least, and what Adam and Eve do in the midst of their panic is not, not simply to blame one another, right? There's more going on, and there are elements of truth that saturate what they have to say. So if we look at Adam, and Adam says, uh, the woman, he doesn't stop at the woman, he says, the woman that you gave to me. Well, does Adam have a point? You know, uh, God, you created for me the right helper. She's not been that helpful. Right? Doesn't he have a bit of a point? And then Eve says, uh, you know, the serpent. And if you're not, if you don't stop dead in your tracks when you read that, you really need to think about it a bit more deeply because the question there is, who let the serpent in the garden? What is the serpent doing there? I was working in the backyard yesterday and turned the corner, getting ready to mow, and there was a, a, a four to five foot snake uh, coiling in our fence. And I, I don't really, I don't like snakes. I don't, that's not my wheelhouse. So, and yeah, it's highly uncomfortable moment. Um, but, so debating, is this a rat snake? I like rat snakes theoretically because they eat rodents. Or is this poisonous? And then coming to the conclusion that it was poisonous. Now, my kids play in the yard. And so as soon as I decided that this is potentially a poisonous snake, uh, or venomous, whatever the right term is, I, uh, I killed it, right? I'm not going to allow a snake, a, a venomous snake to play in my backyard where my kids are. That's not the decision that God made. He let the serpent play with great and phenomenal consequence. Right? So you say, what? how do we understand that? We make of it that God creates us, right, but allows this to occur, right? And we begin to understand in some ways what Paul means when God has willingly subjected the creation to futility. That this was part of his plan that he could actually get to the cross. He's somehow, and again, I'm, I'm not sure the Bible gives us all the answers here, but God is willing to create us knowing that we will never choose him but knowing that eventually he will put his love on display in such a way and reach out to us and woo us to himself. I mean, we might be one. And that really is the difference between the, in the trial in one sense because you come to Jesus and where Adam and Eve have both engaged in all the sin but also drawn back from God, you see Jesus not only running to God but as Paul will put it in Philippians 2, he becomes obedient unto death. Right? The greatest thing that could be asked of him, he says, okay, I will be obedient in this regard because I trust you, Father, and rely upon you. And I think in Easter Sunday, 
right? Where the resurrection proves that that was the right decision, right? Jesus is vindicated in his resurrection from the dead that we're, we're beckoned. In those places of panic, right, where you see yourself um, uh, concealing and protecting, where you see yourself hiding from God, where you see yourself blaming others, right, that's going to happen when you feel the story going in the wrong direction. And what you're invited to do now is to say, okay, I see Jesus demonstrating what it means to trust in the Father. And through his death and resurrection, I am now redeemed. What does it mean for you to trust? What does it mean for you not to engage those effects of sin, but instead to start to display the vulnerability and the transparency and the innocence of Christ because you are unified to him and informed by that trial? That's the new life that God invites us to. And when we return to those old effects of sin, we simply breathe life into the old man. Let's pray for his grace at this table as we encounter the new. God, our Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you uh, so love the world that you gave up your only begotten Son, that those who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. We thank you that there has been a second trial and that the verdict of that second trial is that the man who stood there could not be contained by death but burst forth because of his righteousness and his obedience unto death. We thank you for your righteousness, Jesus. We praise you for it and pray that as we are unified to you and celebrate our unity to you at this table, that we would be fed by it and that we would increasingly display the effects of your trial and not the effects of our first trial. We ask it humbly in Christ's name. Amen.